Welcome to the Brand the Interpreter podcast. I am your host, Mireya Perez, and this platform is dedicated to sharing the stories of language professionals, that is, the interpreters and translators from around the world. This show aims to highlight not just the profession, but mainly the people behind the amazing work. These are your stories about our profession, and this is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Liberty Language Services and its new sister company, the Academy of Interpretation, that launched in early 2022. The Academy of Interpretation is an online education and learning platform for the language services industry. The AOI's mission is to expand access to educational courses while establishing a standard of quality and professionalism. They do this by bringing language service providers, content creators, and students together on an online platform that's accessible to everyone. The Academy of Interpretation was founded to address the widespread problem of untrained interpreters working in the field. The AOI offers professional accredited courses for interpreters and serves as a platform for organizations to refer their interpreters for training. The AOI is offering Brand the Interpreter listeners a 10% discount on all courses using the discount code AOI10BTI. This code cannot be combined with any other discounts. But check out the episode show notes for more information about the Academy of Interpretation or visit their website at www.academyofinterpretation.com. Liberty Language Services is a rapidly growing language service company that recently celebrated 11 years of providing language access services, and they are currently hiring freelance interpreters for a variety of languages. To find out more about Liberty or to apply, Check out the episode notes. Hello, language professionals from around the world. Welcome back to another episode of the Brand the Interpreter podcast, where I share your stories about our profession. This is Mireya, your host. Thank you for joining me today. I'd like to take a moment before I introduce today's guest to share a clip with you from a listener that took the time to share an audio testimonial via my website. And when I say testimonial, I mean it was so touching, I couldn't help but share it with you. I want to say thank you as always for supporting this podcast. I will never get tired of saying that your support means so much to me. Take a listen. With just a degree in hand and the goal of becoming an interpreter in mind, I kept wondering where do I go from here? Brand the Interpreter podcast directed me towards people and resources that supported my journey from graduate to professional. Thanks to the power of storytelling, this podcast is entertaining while at the same time being educational, enriching, and incredibly inspiring. Most of all, I felt that I was not alone in my journey as a wannabe interpreter. There is a network of professionals out there who are willing to share their expertise and lift each other up. Mireya's podcast shows what happens when human connection marries technology. A global network is created. The podcast is a meeting point for language professionals of all ages and nationalities. We stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. The podcast facilitates just that. Because of platforms like this, younger generations of interpreters now have a network of mentors to learn from and in turn will do the same for generations to come. 
This is how we help our profession grow and progress. So if you are looking for guidance, connections, resources, or just a friendly chat about the field you're passionate about, Brand Interpreter Podcast is the place to go. Kiara, thank you so much for sending this in. It was truly the highlight of my day. I encourage you too to visit my website at www.brandtheinterpreter.com, click on the Let's Connect tab, and record your message about the podcast. Okay, and now on with the show, because it's one of those longies, but goodies. Marifer Sagar leads the Language Access Services Department at Portland Public Schools. She believes that language access and language justice are key components to racial equity and that the strategic use of language can reshape the narratives of traditionally marginalized groups and ultimately transform systems. Her expertise includes the implementation of multilingual communications, outreach, and engagement practices aimed at developing trust and fostering dialogue and cooperation among linguistically diverse communities and institutions. Marifer holds a law degree and a postgraduate certificate in public administration from Mexico. She is the recipient of the 2021 Language Access Visionary Award, a national recognition to outstanding dedication, profound work, and impact in the area of language access in a school district issued by the National Association of Educational Translators and Interpreters of Spoken Languages. Marifet is a 2022 Ed Weeks Leader to Learn From in K-12, recognized for her leadership in equity and inclusion and language access. So, without further ado, please help me welcome Marifet Sagar to the show. Marifer, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Mireya, for having me here. I'm really, really excited and honored to be here with you today. Uh, the honor is all mine because I think that the information that we're going to share with our audience for today's conversation is going to be so needed, so useful. And it's just hopefully my intention is that it'll give others plenty of ideas coming from someone that has gone through the trenches and has done a lot of magnificent work. So I'm very much looking forward to it. And thank you again for being here. I'd like to begin, Marifet, our conversation with knowing a little bit more about you. So finding out a little bit about your childhood, if you wouldn't mind sharing with us a little bit about where you grew up and what a fond memory you have of growing up. Absolutely. Um, So I was born in Mexico. Uh, I grew up in La Sierra Norte de Puebla, um, spent all my childhood there, um, have very interesting upbringing because I will spend the weekdays in La Sierra, but then on Fridays, we will go to Mexico City to see my dad's family. So I had these contracts of a very simple life, but then going to the city, going to museums, be exposed to culture, not that I was not exposed to culture in, in La Sierra, but, you know, like just different culture mm-hmm. um, and, and all that. A memory phone that I can share with you definitely has to be Dia de Muertos. Dia de Muertos was a big event uh, around my house. It was one of those celebrations that my mom really, really enjoyed. Uh, she will host the whole family. Everybody will come from Mexico City um, and we will go to the cemetery, you know, clean up. So it was it was a many days ordeal. Uh, because there was a lot of things to do in preparation to the day off or the days off. Um, so we will get flowers, the food. There were things that needed to be prepared 
you know, a week in advance, um, go into the cemetery and clean, uh, arrange, have the flowers ready, uh, then prepare the food. Uh, I don't think I was too much into the food, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> really? But, but it was the event. Yeah, and it was like the excitement. Everybody was coming and everybody was excited about the food and commenting the dinner, all the little kids there. Uh, it was It was fun. It was a lot of fun. That's so funny because I was just going to ask, like, what was your favorite food while this was all happening? Because, I mean, yeah, some stuff is what one whole week's worth of preparation. I'm sure (laughs) all the scents and everything that was going on, right? The smells going on in the kitchen. So were you helping in the kitchen? Were you helping to prepare or were you doing other responsibilities? Absolutely. Helping a little bit. Uh, And my favorite food was um, tamales de alberjón. It's like a type of bean that comes from La Sierra, it's very specific, uh, and you serve it with mole. So that was my thing. All the other things I didn't care much about. Um, yeah, I, I was helping, you know, uh, whether cleaning the flowers, uh, helping with the food. Um, yeah, always part of that. That is such a beautiful memory. Thank you for sharing that. I think that that's always something that when we hear about the family coming together, right, and and the union and the festivities, just that togetherness, I think there's always something fun there. So I appreciate you having shared that. Coming from uh, Puebla and going into Mexico City, so uh, tell us about how it was different between the two places, because you mentioned that, you know, going to Mexico City, obviously this is, this is a city. So are things, were things faster? What was your, your young mind at that point focusing on between comparing and contrasting between the two places? Absolutely. As I said, particularly when I was young, I think that the difference between a province and a big city were um, really, really big in in Mexico. Um, So life in Puebla was very simple, um, very safe. I could go out to the street on my own, you know, um, play outside with friends, uh, go to friends' houses or my friends come. Most most of the time they were at my home, uh, you know going to run some shorts for my mom, things like that. In Mexico City, there was always that allure that things were a little bit more, um, you know, the life was faster. You need to be careful. Um, you need to to make sure to stay with a grown-up. You could not just go out on your own. Um, and just the exposure to, to other things that I would not normally see or my friends had never seen in Puebla, right? Uh, I will come back and talk about like, oh, we went to the museum or did this or that. And people will be like, that's weird, Marifer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you do those things. So, it, 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 and I understood that there was a difference on that. Um, many of the of the friends that will come to, to the house in Mexico City also have accents and come from different places. So that was another difference that I will always uh, notice. When you were between the two places and especially like, what you mentioned right now with regards to the accents, did that spark curiosity in you at such a young age or was it just something you, you noticed and it stayed with you? I think it was more, I noticed it and I thought it was normal for some people and didn't question it much. Yeah. Um, Justify it like, Oh yeah, that person has an accent, but that's okay. Right. Right. <laughs> it's no big deal. Yeah. They, they, and I only ask because there's sometimes, you know, guests that say, you know, I, I, I wonder why. And that, 
that begins to probe curiosity, you know, in, in the childhood and which of course sets you on the path of let me find out and study and, you know, oh, it's languages and it's because they're coming from different places and things like that. Right. Um, and for me, the association was, oh, okay. It's because they had been coming from other parts of the world. Right. Uh, how, how could it be to be there? Or, or that curiosity is the one that, that wasn't me. What about schooling? Um, what was your experience like in schooling? Were you uh, going to school in both places or were you in school in Puebla or what was that like for you? I was in school in Puebla. So Monday to Friday, I was there. Uh, I went to a Catholic school. Uh, so that was a, an interesting experience in itself. Uh, to this day, I'm friends with everybody in my class. Wow. We have a WhatsApp group. Really? Uh, yeah, and it's kind of fun because, you know, we hear about their babies or their kids, their marriages and divorces and whatnot. Uh, and it's very nice. Uh, it's it's a group that is very supportive. We were very tight. Um, and to this day, we're still there. <laughs> and a Catholic school compared now, and we'll get into the fact that you are in public school, right? Uh, working in a public school system. Um, but what was Catholic what is a fond memory of Catholic school or something that maybe just stayed with you throughout the years? Um, well, as I say, we were very tight. Some of us came together since kindergarten. So we literally had been friends since we were babies. Um, we were a little bit of a rebellious group. Uh, we, we were not happy with the status quo. Uh, there was so much control. We were not allowed to chew gum. And that was a big thing for me. Um, so to this day, I enjoy, really enjoy chewing gum and I feel like I've been rebellious. <laughs> so silly. No, I like, I like that. Thank you for sharing <laughs> that. The fact that, you know, sometimes those little things, you know, are present in the future for us as grownups, you know, and not being happy with the status quo, I think, uh, shows up in your life at some point, again, in your professional career and, and how you chose to make a difference is the topic of today's conversation, but not quite yet. We're still going to get to know Marifet a little bit more and find out and probe a little bit about who you are as an individual before we get to that part. At some point you move from where you were born and raised and, and make a huge transition. Walk us through, you know, what led to that major event. How old were you when it happened? What that experience was like for you? Yeah, well, I was very young. I was still uh, in law school. And I moved from living in Puebla to living in New York City in Manhattan. It was a, a huge change, but definitely those weekends in Mexico City, those summers in Mexico City, prepare me for that major change. Mm. So the city in itself did not scare me. I was like, okay, it's a big city. So I've, I've been in big before. before. Yeah. <laughs> Mexico City is pretty big, perhaps the biggest city in the world. Right. Uh, but uh, what got me by surprise is that I got there thinking that I could speak and communicate in English. Um, and I could write and I could read, um, and arriving and discovering that I don't understand anything anyone is saying. Mm. Because it's not the same to listen to a tape when you are studying English or, you know, uh, follow someone speaking with an accent or whatever, and getting into the real city and hearing all these different accents and all these people going so fast and, you know, they they quick, what do you want, what do you need, let's go on, next. 
Um, that was something that really, really took me by surprise. And it was very quickly evident to me that I had no idea what people were saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so it took me a moment to, to recognize that real life uh, does not match with books and videos and tapes. <laughs> like, wait a minute, that. this doesn't fit, you know, what I went through, what I, yeah. <laughs> Kind of like today with Duolingo, right? Like, that's not what Duolingo say. (laughs) (laughs) You're supposed to respond, tomatoes are in the corner. (laughs) And I will not get those answers. Um, So uh, I I have to to take a moment to to acknowledge that, uh, get into a class right away. I was very lucky to have a very early uh, teacher that told me not to work because I was super focused on how do I remove my accent? And I actually can speak without an accent. And it was that teacher who told me um, or explained to me the value of bringing your culture into a new life that you're going to have speaking the language. And and through these conversations, you know, like I've been reflecting on language forever, <laughs> almost all my life. Um, I, I It is true. Like there is a value on bringing your own accent and your own culture and for others to have to accommodate you and to have to... to uh, make room for you, and it's about accessibility. So that was how how arriving in New York City was. It was uh, brutal in many ways. It was exciting. It everything was new. Um, it it was it was a lot of things. Wow! Um, you quickly brushed through something that we didn't talk about, which is the fact that at some point in your young life, you decided to take on law school. Uh, in, and focus on, on law. So let's go back a little bit to that point. And was there something specific that led you towards that path initially? Or was it just something you felt that, you know, this would be the right career path for me? So when I was in high school, I actually wanted to be a translator. I started to read uh, Julio Cortázar and Milan Kundera. And I discovered through these readings that they were translating their own books in many cases or translating other things. And I was like, that is fascinating. I want to do that. I want to be able to tell a story and then tell it in a different language and then tell it better or sometimes just write, right? Uh, all, all those ideas were in my head. And when I went to my parents and say, I want to be a translator, <laughs> both of them looked at me and they were like, uh, no, <laughs> like that's, that, that that's not, not a career. That's not yeah, a that's career. Not <laughs> and they were like, how are you going to become a translator? Like, where are you going to go to study? How, you know, what is going to be the long-term uh, outlook for you? Like, you need to be more practical and all these things. And I wanted to do something that had to do with other cultures and 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 language that that was always in my mind. So with with the response of my parents, I was like, okay, what options do I have? What can I do? Um, so my second option I always was to do law because I wanted to help people. Right, right. Particularly in Mexico, Mexico with the status of women at the time. Uh, that was something that I, I was uh, really interested. And I have had some experiences uh, on that regard. So I wanted to, I thought, well, I can add value there. I can go to law school and I can do these things. As I was in law school, I became familiar with international law. And I was like, wait a second, I can still do this. Uh, there is an intersection of language and law where I could um, contribute um, to, the, to the scene. 
That's so great. I I thank you for having shared that. I think that, you know, sometimes we get those experiences with thinking about the profession and and our love for languages, maybe even our love for cultures, linguistics, things of that nature, and we never really quite can pinpoint the future as to where that would lead us. Um and unfortunately, you know, it does become uh this comparison, if you will, of which degree or which career path is going to be the one that's more impressive, right? Or something like that. And I'm using air quotes for those that can't, uh, that can't see me. And unfortunately, because our industry or profession is not out there exposed the way potentially other professions are, um, that, that is, I, I feel like I hear that a lot when it comes to, you know, somebody saying I'm interested in language or linguistics. Uh, it reminds me of, of, one of my own stories when I said, you know, oh, I'm, I'm majoring in Spanish for my uh, for my bachelor's. And uh, and I remember the person kind of, you know, looking sideways and saying, like, what are you going to do with that? Like, the only thing you can do is teach, you know? Yeah. And so it just it was interesting to me to think like, wow, that's how limiting. Right. Uh, we are in this profession uh, with when it comes to language. So thank you for having shared that. Now, if you would be so kind as to sharing, was there something specific that made that decision for you to come to the States as opposed to continuing law school? Was it some sort of maybe scholarship or was it family or was it what was the deciding factor for you to move and make such a huge change in your life? Um, it's super cheesy, but um, I fall in love. Ah, I knew you were going to go there. For some- <laughs> <laughs> and um, we decided to get married. And my then then husband, uh, well, I mean, he's still my husband. Let me clarify. Um, accepted a, a scholarship to go to Columbia University for a PhD. Wow. So we were like, okay, how do we do this? So we decided that we will go do one year of the PhD. I needed one more year of law school. So we will, after that year, we will come back um, for me to finish my degree. And then we will go back for him to finish the rest of the PhD. So we we both are very rational. So we have this under control. We knew what we were doing. That's uh, how we went to to live in, in Manhattan. And that's because we live so close to Columbia University. I started taking some uh, classes there as well. Um, mostly end up being English, as I mentioned, because, you know, I just could not communicate. Um, so I could read, I could write. Um, so I could go to the store, write something and show it to the person and say like, this is what I want. Do you understand what I mean? Um, <laughs> and most importantly, can you write what you are telling me, right? Because I have no idea what you are saying. Um, then at the end of that school year, we went back to Mexico for me to finish the degree. And when we were ready to go back to New York City again, um, it's when the uh, Twin Towers uh, were attacked. We were still in Mexico. We were watching from our TV and immediately our parents called us and they were like, this. we were going to travel back to New York City in five days or something like that after September 11. And our parents were like, there is no way how you are going back. Please don't go. So we need to change our plans. We stay a little bit longer in Mexico, uh, which was great for me. Um, and then uh, for him to continue with his PhD, we went to Montreal. 
So that was how long between, you know, the period that you ended up staying and deciding change of plans. Now, what are, you know, what are we going to do? How long was that period? So the, the September 11th was September. Uh, we make a quick plan and adjust. And by December 31st, we were in Montreal. Now, was there a significant difference there for you in terms of experience and culture shock? What was that like? Well, yes, you know, immigration and, and mobility and living a country comes with a lot of challenges and with a lot of emotions. I will describe it as an emotional process, regardless of the reason for you to, to leave a country. And basically it is because regardless of the reason, whether it's because you are being persecuted or you fall in love and you are going somewhere else or you get a scholarship and you are going, um, you are leaving something behind. Mm-hmm. And as I say, when I went to New York City, it felt like I was a tourist, right? Like I knew that I was coming back to Mexico the next year. Mm. I knew there there was something else. But once you make that decision of moving into a different country, you know that this is it. Uh, I I hope that most people realize that this is it and that you are leaving a lot of things behind. And then even if you go back, you are not going to find those things anymore. Um, Everything changes. Life continues without you. And even if you try to come back and be part of that, that is, you know, you are always welcome, but but that that you were journeying is no longer there. And and those are realizations that I hope that most people have. I have them very early on, um, adjusting to a new culture. So Quebec, Quebecer culture is very different. Um, it's French dominated. Um, we were we were foreigners, and it was not an easy transition. Um, I didn't know French. I have to learn French. Um, people refuse to to talk in English with us uh, mm. just because that is the, the political climate, right? And, you know, uh, nothing prepares you for uh, how stressful settling in, in a new culture, in any country could be, particularly when you don't speak the, the language. In, in the United States, I always have the option, as I say, I could read and I can write. Uh, if someone was patient enough, I could communicate. That was it, I, I wasn't completely isolated. In Quebec, I found myself completely isolated. I could not understand for my life what was going on culturally. Um, I could not understand uh, the political context uh, in, in a country that I had known. And I saw as an English-speaking country, uh, living in, in the French part was uh, really, really different. Uh, and really nothing could have prepared me for that. Uh, immigration processes are always uh, stressful and often trigger uh, autoimmune responses uh, among refugees and immigrants, and there is a lot of documentation on that. I was no exception, and suddenly I needed to have medical care, and I will go to the doctor's appointment. Nobody will inform me of my right of having an interpreter. Uh, people will refuse to talk to me in English, and I will see everybody in the room talking about me, without me being able to understand. So once I was uh, fine again, uh, that experience made me decide that I needed to learn and be fluent in French very quickly. And that was all I was thinking every day. How can I be fluent today? How can I get better and better and better every day? Um, So I did everything on my um, reach to become fluent 
um, and I did. And <laughs> I also, in the in the way, I learned that I was really strong and resilient because I could just sit down and cry forever for the experience. And I was like, okay, so this was actually pretty bad. And I have resources to make it better. So how is it this for people that don't have those resources? And so that was my intersection of being a lawyer with uh, being so passionate about language that made me decide that I needed to be fluent by tomorrow and that I needed to help people. What a powerful story, uh, Marifed. I feel like obviously our experiences shape the decision-making process, especially if, like you said, we have the resources in order to be able to do something about it. And so we begin first with ourselves. And then, of course, uh, how do we create something that's going to support someone that may have gone through the same experiences or is going through the same experiences that I experienced? You know, is there something that I can do differently to maybe change their experience so that they don't go through the same thing. So um, thank you for having shared that story. I think that it's powerful and it really is a great segue into us getting into, you know, how you utilize not just your experiences and your education um, and, and, you know, your ability to really think about how to take action and, and create solutions where you're currently at. So let's get started in the conversation of how did you begin the process of actually getting involved with language in the language industry? What Take us through those steps, how, how you even started connecting the dots and saying, I'm going to focus on this issue of translation or interpreting and, and build my way up through, you know, however you started. Walk us through that piece. So as I mentioned, um, since I was very young, language was a constant in my life. So when I was in high school, uh, my dad decided, which is not usual for Mexicans with my background, but uh, he decided that I needed to do something to, to start working. He wanted me to learn responsibility. So he was like, uh, so what are you going to do to to start working and doing something? So I didn't know what to do uh, because uh, I, I just didn't know. So he said, why don't you um, have like a public desk? I don't know if that's how you say it in English. Uh, in Mexico, you call it um, um, escritorio público. So the idea, it's a very old idea where people that want to send a letter come to you like a, scri- a scriber. Oh. And you type it for them, you give it to them. So people were transitioning into computers and everything needed to be in a computer. And a lot of people didn't have access to one or didn't know how to use one. So my dad had this brilliant idea that I will do that in my free time. So I have to go and work every day. Um, so my, my fam- the business of my family was a, a bookstore. So I will go to the bookstore. I have a corner with a computer. People will come and I will type the thing, then print it and give it to them and I will get paid. Uh, so that was my thing. So one day, uh, one of my dad's friends, uh, who was an a indigenous uh, professor uh, at, the, at the education program, came and my dad will help him now and then with his papers. Um, my dad was a journalist, so he will do edits for him and all that. So he came and he saw me there and he said, what's up, Marifer? What are you doing there? And then I say, well, my dad is asking me to do this. You know, I was a teenager, like he's asking me to do these things. And so I have to come every day, two hours. And on the weekends, I have to be sitting here for four hours. 
And he was like, that's a great idea, Marifer. And I was like, sure, whatever. Um, and so I he guess. Said, so, <laughs> I guess, whatever you say. And he was like, so how is it going? And I was like, well, sometimes I have people and, you know, they, they come and they tell me the stories and I write the letter and I print it and that's it. And he said, you know, uh, I have a group of students that are getting ready to graduate from the uh, education program. They had been allowed to do the education and the assignments in their first languages, in indigenous languages. But because of the state requirements, they need to submit their thesis in Spanish. And they are struggling because there is concepts, you know, that they have been learning in their own language that now they have to put in Spanish and all that. Like, would you be willing to help them typing and then doing the edits for the thesis? And I was like, I don't know, I guess so. Let's try it. So suddenly I found myself reading education materials, uh, learning about liberation theory and Paulo Freire, uh, understanding the struggles that our own communities were having when accessing um, higher education. And this was transformative on me. It was like, whoa, and learn, understanding politics, uh, you know, all these things. So I spent the next two years probably working on, on those projects. Um, it, it was really enriched, enriching. Uh, I learned a little bit of Nahuatl and Otomi along the way. Um, and, and, and that was one of the first things. But throughout my career, for many years, I will resist. It was like, okay, that was a side thing that I did. Now I'm going into law. And then again, it will come. So you are asking me when I was in Montreal, I told you I was figuring out, okay, I am a lawyer. I am going to be fluent. And I'm going to do this thing where I'm going to be helping people. I don't know how. Right. But I'm going to do it. <laughs> that's that's um, intention. That's intention setting. Right. I don't know how. Right. But I'm going to do it. But I know I'm going to do it. So um, what happened then, uh, it's uh, I started volunteering uh, for uh, an organization that was helping, again, women, because that was my focus as a lawyer. Um, and I was suddenly somebody say, oh, my God, we need this case and all that. And so I was prepping the women that spoke Spanish to go into court. That was my role. But suddenly somebody say, and we have these documents and the documents are in Spanish and we don't have Spanish translators. And we are not familiar with the Mexican system. And I was like, I think I can do it. So they gave me the document. Sure enough, I was familiar with those uh, type of legal documents. And that's how it started without a really an intention, but kind of like the intersection of these two things. Um, then uh, we moved to English Canada. So I left all that behind. And when I got into English Canada, it was easier because I was fluent in English for real. I could understand people. <laughs> and now I also have French with me, right? As part of my toolkit. Right. Um, so I was very intentional into the things I wanted to do. And I knew I wanted to help people struggling with uh, access to, to legal system that were refugees or immigrants and that there was a, a component of language. I had a better idea. So I started working with immigrant uh, focus organizations, helping uh, families. And along the way, I, language keep coming to me. So for a while, I was, I was supervising the uh, language bank where we were doing a lot of the legal documentation for immigrants and refugees. And I was not prepared for that. 
that is my, today, that's my realization. At the time, people thought I was doing a fantastic job. But I started to prepare. <laughs> I, I, I realized that I needed to learn so many things. And I started to be intentional on professional development that I was taking that will give me those skills um, so that I could back up uh, any work I was doing. But then again, I was like, okay, but this is like a thing that I do on the side because language is not a real thing, right? Because that was the... the the prep, the programming that I had received at home, like language is not a thing. Right. It's, it's not professionally. Like, it's something you do yeah. on the side. You do it on the side and that's it. So I keep uh, going into management and doing other things that had to do with law. Um, and language was a component, but I keep t- trying to throw it to someone else, like not me. Um, along the way, I developed a toolkit of how to engage people, how to do outreach, marketing, and all those things uh, that had to do with uh, nonprofit work. And and again, I keep saying, but yeah, but language is not a thing. Um, I was recruited to do a translation for the government of of Alberta um, in multiple languages. And, And I started with, okay, I can edit it for you, like, I have no doubts on my skills as a Spanish editor. I can do that for you. To next, I am editing in other language, in French, and I am like, I am not sure, like with a not with someone else, right? Like in in partnership. And but but again, it's something that I keep resisting, um, but keep coming to me. But it and keeps I, coming, right? Right, it keeps showing up and in I, your life. And I continue preparing for that, like just because I'm curious. I want to know about this. I am interested on this and on that. And I always thought it's just for me, like this is just because I am interested. It's nothing that is going to come to be a a real thing. Um, Like a hobby. It's like, you know, like you say, like a side thing, but it's just, yeah, it's just for me because I'm curious about this. It interests me. And so people started recommending me to do things and they will be like, just this, just please do it for me. And I will do it like, okay, you're my friend. I'm going to do it. And I will get paid and all that. But I, it, it was not about that. So I have been a freelancer for many years. Uh, for many, many years, I had done a lot of projects. Eventually, I became a project manager for some of those things, just because I know how to do the translation um, between whatever the requester wants and how communicated with graphic designers, how to communicate it with uh, translators. Uh, suddenly I became this, this other thing. And so it's like, okay, but this is on the side. Remember, like, this is not a full-time job. Um, I have been offered uh, jobs to do that. Uh, and I keep, throughout those years, I keep thinking, no, 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 I need a real job where I'm doing other things. Uh, but also that had given me the freedom to when something um, is not working, I can just say, okay, see you later. I'm going to go back. I'm going to fall back into that network of freelance work that I can do. Um, and definitely uh, the Spanish editing, that that has always been a thing in my life. Now looking uh, back. Looking back. Now share with us what your current title is, Marifer. Uh, I need help. I'm scrambling to find interpreters for our board meeting. We have a staffed Spanish interpreter, but we need Korean, Farsi, and Arabic. Plus, we have a slew of IEP meetings coming up, most of them in exotic languages. I'm calling everywhere. I know what we need. I met the perfect translation agency at OCDE's Interpreters and Translators Conference. 
Certified Interpreting Services. They offer in-person and virtual services. Certified Interpreting Services? Yes. They're professional, warm, and perfect for our diverse district's needs. How do we contact them? Call or email. It's all on their website, cisinterpreters.com. cisinterpreters.com. That's just what we need. I'm contacting them now. Thank you for calling Certified Interpreting Services. This is Jasmine. My current title is Senior Manager of Language Access at a school district. At a school district. You're in a public school district now. So, you know, completely involved in accessing or helping to access the education system via a meaningful and appropriate language access, right? And so how many students do you service in your school district approximately? Uh- we serve up, so we have 50,000 students, and from those, we serve 10,000 students uh, that speak a language other than English at home. How many languages are there uh, in, in your area? Those vary from year to year based on enrollment, but this year we have 130 languages, including ASL. Wow. I mean, that is amazing and definitely a reason why there needs to be a system created. And with all your experiences and, and, you know, how it continued to come into your life and showing up like, hello, I'm still here. I'm not going anywhere. This is going to be a thing for you. Evidently, it ended up being a thing for you. And it, it did, in fact, become, you know, something that you can say, I'm professional in this and, you know, and I specialize in this. The experiences that you had throughout your journey that led you towards leading uh, such a big project in, in your school district had to help you, I imagine, define some of these very strong terms, terms that we now begin to see, unfortunately, as a result of a lot of social unrest, right? Especially here in the U.S., where throughout the years, in these last few years, it seems like, you know, we begin to get back into these conversations that we thought we had left buried in the past. And if not buried, at least the memories, you know, is all that remained. And suddenly we find ourselves as a society going through these these topics and things that that many, many people didn't know existed, unfortunately. And these terms that I'd like to focus on for the sake of our conversation are equity and inclusion. And for those of us that work in public education, these are terms that are being utilized more and more. What is equity? What is inclusion? And for us language professionals, the idea here is we want it we want to jump into the conversation for the sake of inclusion and letting people know that language access is a part of the equity and the inclusion conversation. So help us define, in your words, Marifer, what is equity and inclusion? Thank you uh, for those questions. Those, those are very important terms uh, that, I, again, I have to enough time to to think a lot about it. For me, language access is definitely the pillar of equity. Um, Equity recognizes that each person has different circumstances and tries to allocate those resources or the necessary resources to create opportunities needed for people to have better outcomes, whether those outcomes are um, healthcare outcomes, housing outcomes, uh, educational outcomes. Uh, Just to, to expand a little bit on that, 
as I was telling you, I, I continue working in the nonprofit and always trying to think language is a thing on the on the side. I've been trained, uh, I had training for interpretation, for interpreting, I had done interpretations, simultaneous and consecutive. I perhaps do a better job at being a simultaneous interpreter than a consecutive one, but it's not something that I enjoy, that, that makes me really nervous. It's, it's outside of my area of comfort. Uh, but I also receive a lot of training to actually be a, a translator. Uh, and, and that always had felt more comfortable. And through, through these things, I started thinking on different uh, elements of how people access things and what are the limits, limitations to accessing those resources. Um, so at some point, I was working on a healthcare project. Uh, and there was a lot of money and a lot of uh, different organizations and lots of interest in, in improving the outcomes of the Latino Spanish-speaking population. And as I was thinking on the barriers, I thought that the real barrier there was that the Latino uh, population did not understand what we were trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. We were talking too high, all the physicians, all the, this terminology and jargon. So that was one element. We needed to use plain language. And the other element was that among the Latino communities, there was not a health literacy understanding. Of, this is back in the day before health literacy was a thing. So I created, uh, I was charged to create the health literacy pathway that included simple things like, are you taking your medication? So you have a list of the medications that you have, right? Like those are things that culturally we don't do that. We just put all the medications in a corner and so hopefully we're going to remember which one we need to take and if we had taken it or not. So creating those elements. And, and this has to do with equity because oftentimes uh, we think that as we're doing the equity work, and that is because I say that language access is a pillar, we think that that is enough to say that we're doing equity work. And we forget that we actually need to be able to communicate in a language people can understand the the things that we are trying to convey and that that language, even though you are translating or interpreting, has to be accessible for for anybody, regardless of the educational level. So that that is, I'm going to stop there. Uh, Your second question was about inclusion. And I, well, inclusion is even a more complex term for me because everybody that I know, I believe that are truly trying to be inclusive. If you ask anybody, uh, they will tell you that, yes, I want to be inclusive and, and show me how or tell me how. I don't think anyone wakes up. Or I don't know anyone that wakes up in the morning and thinks, oh, how I can block more people. Like, how can I block this group of people from joining? I don't think so. However, there is a lack of understanding that one thing is to include somebody. So bring a chair for you to sit down next to me. And the other thing is to create access for that person to participate meaningfully. So when I bring someone that speaks a different language and I have the person there, I am doing a check mark. When I bring an interpreter for that person to understand what we are talking about, when I translate the documents in a timely manner and I put them in simple terms so that the person can understand what the discussion is about, then I am creating access. Those two terms need to be addressed and understand hand to hand and if you are not doing both, then you might as well not do any um, because, you know, you're just checking uh, in your to-do list what you need to do. That's so powerful. 
It's it's so true. I think that, you know, particularly in the education system, many of us tend to feel like things that are done are done to check off the box in the list of items that need to be done um, to comply with, you know, legalities or things of the sort. And so I'm very intentional when I use the word meaningful access and appropriate access, because there has to be more intention than just the checkoff of a box uh, to indicate that, yes, you know, that you complied with the bare minimum. Um, and so what, what our intention is truly, if we're talking about these two terms, uh, equity and inclusion, then, then we want to make sure that we, we use these words um, in a way that really means something to individuals, right? In a way that we're connecting people uh, with language to one another and to, you know, the school communities um, or the uh, community schools, excuse me, and things of that nature. So equity and inclusion, yes, while they are conversation topics in public education right now, it's so important for us to highlight or for me to be, be able to bring people to highlight the importance of language access within the conversations of equity and inclusion, because just like you said, um, it's, it very much goes hand in hand. Talk to us, Marifet, about your current role and how you support language access to school-related programs and services. You know, give us a little bit about how you got started and if this role already existed and you continued somebody else's work and expanded it, you know, things of that nature. Uh, Walk us through this journey of yours. So as I was saying, I work in the health literacy pathway and that got me thinking a lot about linguistics, the use of words, um, how words are used to continue oppressing people, but also can be used to lift communities. So with those thoughts in mind, um, I move on to do many other work, working um, in different roles um, in, in management and, and whatnot. And at some point I just thought, actually what I need to do is to move to work into language. Like that is the thing, that is the key. And I have this kind of uh, epiphany where I was, I, I really need to do that. And I don't know how. Mm. So as you can see, I am about a lot. I manifest a lot of things. And I was like, I don't know how, I don't know what is next. But I think that it will be great if I have like a big system that does not exist, that I can come and build up from the ground up. Um, and with that, I went to meet with a friend uh, for coffee. The friend said, we were having this conversation of what I need to do next, like of what I really think that uh, that it's my thing, my call to action in life, if, if you may. And then she say, hey, do you know that um, there is this position open? Uh, it looks like you can turn it into something what, of what you are describing. And so I look into that. The next day I needed to travel to Mexico. And the deadline was that night. And I was like, I don't know, I have time to sit down and craft a letter. You know, like I have to pack and I have to be ready to go. Um, and I'm traveling with my kids, so I need to, this, this is what is important. So maybe around 10 o'clock in the night before leaving the next day, I am like, okay, I finished everything. I'm going to look into this. I crafted the letter. I put the thing, submitted, forgot about it. And went to Mexico, have fun. And when I come back, I was invited for a for an interview. 
um, they told me that they had been looking for someone for a very long time. And the position originally was just to manage translations and interpretation. That was the focus. And it was really, really uh, mechanical in the sense that you receive something, you find someone, bye. And probably by now, you know that that is not what I am up to in life. <laughs> so <laughs> that was too boring for me. And I was like, okay, so what we really need here is to transform the system and, and to make it meaningful for everybody so that this work makes sense for me in the day-to-day, but also for, for the recipients of the services. So I started to bring up the concept of language access and people were very resistant to that. They will tell me that that didn't mean anything. That, that And I was like, that's because you don't read the laws and that's because you're not informed, but let me help you. <laughs> and that's kind of my approach. Um, so I started to, to develop systems and to put uh, training opportunities for staff in place, not for interpreters at, the mo- at that time, but rather for those that needed to provide the service because those were the ones that needed the most help. Correct. Uh, then I started bringing professional development opportunities for my staff, for uh, language access specialists, for translators, and I started having this vision of what this will look like and what were the areas of improvement, uh, not only for the district, but I like to tackle problems of practice that everybody knows. Everybody knows that this letter is complex, it's going out, nobody understands, then we receive 100 calls and then we need to figure out how to explain it. So if we know that, why don't we just write a letter that is simple and that everybody will understand in the first place, right? To me, that is very evident. And I also understand that it's not for everybody. So I try to have whenever people let me, Mm-hmm. I try to to go and whisper so that we can do things and solve some of those institutional problems of practice that consumes our time and energy mm. where we could be putting it in, in better place and better use. Um, so my first year here was around doing a needs assessment. I felt really strong that the fact that people thought that we were a department that just do things was problematic. Mm. Because people, because that, and that is the problem of, of the status of the profession. People think it's an industry. You just go, put the things, comes out on the other side. Yeah. <laughs> and it is not. There is a lot uh, of. An assembly have, line. It's an assembly right? line. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that is super problematic. So for me to change that narrative and make people understand, um, and this is something I use a lot on my trainings, you can do this for two reasons. One is you are a very nice human being and you wanna give access to others because you believe that they deserve to navigate the world and experience the world the way you do just because you speak English or just because you were born in this country. And so you have the option of not being a nice person and have to do it because you you have to comply with the law. And I'm okay with whichever you wanna do, but let's just give access to people. I'd like to take a pause real quick before we continue here and just kind of uh, talk about the how right now, because I think that for many uh, potentially listening and, and trying to identify how that's something that they can bring into their school district, 
we're always considering how do I do that? So when you say um, I educate or I help educate people in understanding, first and foremost, you know, the reason why we need to put this together or send this out. How did you do that? What, what did you begin by doing? Conversations with who and how did you make your way into these conversations? Because it's not a conversation or rather I should say it's not a, a moment where they open the door and say, Hmm, maybe Marifer would have something to say about this or share about this. You usually have to invite yourself to these conversations. So how did you go about that? Well, I've been very, very lucky, and this is just luck, plain luck, into coming into the district uh, just a month after we had welcomed our first Latino superintendent. A superintendent that was and has been focusing his work on equity and social justice. So both of us are in a very similar alignment and and that just happened. Uh, When I came to my interview, the person that was interviewing me mentioned that uh, the superintendent uh, Guerrero um, was a a Latino Chicano man and was working to or wanted to work towards uh, these goals uh, of equity and social justice. And I, at the moment, I thought, oh, my God, I mean, the sky is the limit, because if he if him and I are in an alignment, which seems that we are, there is so much advancement that I can make for for language access. You see, you and, figure we can conquer the world. However, however, I'd like to add, though, that even when you have. Um, a bilingual individual that understands the need uh, that that may not necessarily transfer into understanding language access and how that plays a role in conversations of equity and inclusion in a public school system. So, right. So there's still a conversation and education to be had. Right. And as I was saying, I'm lucky in that philosophical alignment because it make it easier for me to start pitching to my immediate superior and and then to pitching to others and then start writing and start saying, hey, had you considered this? Had you see, I hear you that you want to accomplish this vision. Had you considered that bringing interpreters and using the power of language access will bring more people to the table? People around here can tell you that I am not a quiet one. So I, I just keep bringing it up. Uh, to whoever wants to listen. Um, and people have been seeing the results since the beginning. And so there, there has been a recognition of certain events, certain things uh, need to include language access. That's there's so still a lot of work to do. Right. Don't there's always so much work. Yeah. That I don't want people to think that, oh, this is perfect and we live in the perfect uh, school district. Right. Uh, we probably don't, but there is a lot of um, advancement that I see. Um, we are a national model for the work we do on language access. And 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 I appreciate the support that I have received from, from leaders. Without That's- that, it's difficult to, to do it. And I understand that. What have been some of these major impacts as a result of of ensuring that language access is part of the conversation? What is one of those highlights, Marifer, that you say, wow, you know, this is we've come a long way. And and like you said, there's 
always more work to be done. I think in any, in any area, right. Um, that there's always room for improvement, but, but you can look back and think, um, we've come a long way from where we started at least. What would you say that would be for you? Uh, definitely rebranding the department from translations and interpretations to language access, and then starting a low-key campaign where I will go to different uh, departments and talk about language access and talk about my experience. I think that it brings a lot of credibility when you hear me having an accent and you hear me telling you that I also had been on the other side of the spectrum where I didn't receive uh, an interpreter and I couldn't communicate in the language. So I'm not just telling you concepts that I learned. This is a lived experience as well um, on on many different fronts, right? Like I know what it's like not having the service. I know what it's like to learn the language. I know what it's like to be an interpreter or a translator. I'm not just coming here with things because I like to talk. Um, I, I have gone through all those experiences. And I think that is powerful for people to, to hear. Um, having those, uh, being part of those early trainings across the district for new educators and new principals and describe these experiences, but also how this in, uh, in, have the potential of increasing student outcomes is important. Yeah, I mean, just, just professionalizing the department in itself. No, uh, no, that that has been a, a big difference, like bringing professional development to staff, bringing the tools that we need and saying like, yes, we can do this like any major company, but we need to, to do the work. I love the rebrand, obviously, brand the interpreter, rebranding and and but but particularly because you mentioned this a little bit earlier in our conversation that words have power. Yes. So what is the intention behind the work that we're doing? And, and in your case, you know, I love it. Just totally love it. Moved out of translation and interpreting and into something that's more powerful, more meaningful language access. Um, how much time were you initially given to have these conversations, Marifed, when you were doing your campaign Right, you're going out there campaigning and advocating for you know for your for your topic. I call it my roadshow. I go out there too, and it's basically the same thing. That's what we're doing, right? We're going out there uh, campaigning for for the cause. Um, but how much time were you initially given for these conversations? Just curiosity, quick. You know, when you said, "Let me go, let me get in there and talk to people," what were you given initially? As I was telling you, do through my freelance work. I have learned a lot of a lot of skills. Uh, sometimes because the uh, companies that I'm working for will come and say, "Hey, let's preview this. We have this free training. Go for this." So that is where my marketing uh, edge comes from. Um, I, I I am good at being a spokesperson and and advocate uh, and and do that rebranding and branding. Um, I think initially, uh, probably in the three first months. I sit down with whoever wanted to listen um, that have certain influence that will get me into classrooms or in front of people to, to expand and to uh, have a bigger reach. Um, I did that. Um, then I think two or three years ago, I decided that I normally tend to be very private um, in, in my personal life. But two or three years ago, I decided that I need to make this bigger, that 
my purpose is to transform the, the system at the nation level. And we were ready. And I started to use Twitter. And through that, I, I started to, to spread the message and try to, to give more uh, information and tools. And, and, and the reason for that was that I started to receive calls from other school districts wanting to learn what we were doing. And so it was clear to me that there was a space to lead the, the language access in education, that there was uh, a need to follow a model. And we had the resources, the tools, and the experience, and we could do that. Um, so, so that was part of it. Uh, so I, I will say there has been intentional work at different times. Uh, so the beginning, as I say, the first three months, it was like, just let me rebrand. Uh, and this is the reasons. Yeah. Um, there have been other times when I wanted to implement a scheduling system that it was like, let me bring this scheduling system. Listen, this is going to, and, and I am a lot about efficiencies in life too. So if I can spend seven hours doing something versus two, why not give me back five hours of my life, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I, that, that's how my brain works, works in terms of what, what I'm hearing and words and languages mean. And I sometimes could be obsessive thinking about those things because I'm sure that through conversations and through um, whatever I'm reading, there is a subtext that I could be missing that I need to get to and that maybe that is the one that is going to help me uh, getting into the other person, you know, like get through with my message. I, I am sure always about that. And I think I have been correct about that to, to this moment. Uh, I try to think how my message is going to go to certain audiences mm -hmm. so that they are open to the uh, message, to the potential ask that I'm making and, and that. And, and I'm one that ended up uh, coming across, you know, your, your very intentional um, campaign, if you will, you know, with regards to what you're doing because uh, of an article that was published. And so I, I want to get into that and how that came to be. But um, for those that are listening, that potentially are striving and are hungry for some sort of system and, and systems of support for maybe their own roles, or, you know, maybe they're, they're ready for something more uh, within their school districts and more structure. We tend to, to tell our stories and always, it seems superficially like, okay, we go from point A to point B in this direction, linear, which is great. There's always challenges along the ways, right? I mean, right? <laughs> right. Uh, right. And so for you, Marifer, what would you say with, with, with the many challenges that you faced, what was the biggest challenge in the, in the creations and the structures and the rebranding and the conversations in a system where this system does not exist? where the mm -hmm. term does not exist, where sometimes even the understanding of bilingual versus trained interpreter translator, there is absolutely no knowledge of. What was your biggest challenge in, the, in all of this? I think that the biggest challenges um, that I see across uh, educational systems, not only mine, but others, um, are two. One is shifting the narratives, not seeing 
interpreters as the enemy, the enemy that comes from outside to join the educational system and sometimes wants just to look back in front of parents. That is not the interpreter. The interpreter is your bridge to families. It's the person that is going to uh, help you navigate a different culture and should be seen as part of the educational team. That does not mean that the interpreter is going to say that everything is fine or, you know, the so many assumptions that people have about interpreters that I don't want to go into. Um, but 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 shift, I know you know, <laughs> but shifting that that narrative is one part of it. The other narrative is the translators are not invisible. That's right. It feels and and you know you're a good translator when others don't look at you or cannot feel you, but translators are humans, humans translators are better. And, and so changing those things, understanding that there is the reason why we need time to translate is important. Uh, understanding our process are as important as the ones of the original writer. Um, it's important. And then shifting the narrative of staff that are supposed to bring language access into the different uh, families to understand that they have to request the service, again, either because they are good people and they want to give equal access and meaningful access to people, or because they are not nice people, but they want to, you know, be in compliance. Uh, or maybe they are good people, but they don't know and they still want to be in compliance. <laughs> I just don't want to be controversial about that. Uh, but, you know, making sure that, that that people understand those things, what it does to families when they have language access, what it does to our students when they can have an equal opportunity to move up in life. Mm, yeah. That is one of the challenges. The second challenge is funding, right? Uh, particularly during a crisis, particularly as I think the educational system is changing forever mm-hmm. after COVID. And so remember, of course, schools and classrooms are the most important thing, having teachers in the classrooms is important, but it's just as important to have enough interpreters and translators. Um, School systems are complex. It requires a lot of um, personnel of different categories. Teachers is one is the most obvious, but there is supporting staff that also need to be um, included in in those conversations, uh, services that need to be taken into consideration because we may want to be equitable and socially just uh, justice uh, focused but if we are not providing the means and the tools for people to participate meaningfully in decision making processes and other things um we are going to fall short and yeah. right now it's a crisis with 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 interpreters um not wanting to come to classrooms because they are seen as you know, potential focus for infections or or things like that, uh, being paid better by the legal system or the healthcare system. Uh, so we were coming out of the pandemic with a lot of challenges as well. And, and we need to rethink how we are engaging with interpreters, particularly uh, to provide services. And I'm so- working on that. I want you to know these past two weeks, uh, that is the one thing that kept me up at night. And if they keep you up at night, then that definitely means that we're just, you know, like so involved, you know, full, full throttle, you know, heart is involved. If, if that happens, I have so many questions, uh, uh, for you, Marifet, and I know that we can't crunch them all within one hour conversation. I do want to try to get 
you know, uh, maybe a couple more questions uh, in here. And, you know, for the audience, you do this as a, you know, chapter one, chapter two uh, type of, of listening, because uh, it's good stuff. And I think that, you know, for me, it's so important to bring out, uh, in addition to the efforts already created and already uh, focused um, with getting the word out, Uh, language access in K through 12 schools. I want to use this platform to to highlight, you know, the stories and highlight the work that has already been done. Uh, because I I'm one of those that most definitely sought to to find models that already exists out there that are that are in in full force. Um, and that are already supporting families and there's no need for us to recreate the wheel. You know, we can uh we can create it to tailor our own needs in our districts, but, uh, you know, no need to recreate the wheel when something great already exists. Right. Um, so, so just a couple more questions for you, Manifend, because I honor your time as well. What would you like to see differently in the language industry as, as it relates to the language access in K through 12 schools? Um, what would you like to see differently? I could like to see just in general that the language industry it's seen as a profession. I think it's big and overarching. That's the one thing. And that will do so much good to everybody. Me too. Me too. <laughs> I'm with you on Looking that Looking forward one. to that. Very much. What recommendations would you make to school or district administrators regarding language access? And, and with that, or in addition to that, what about the language professionals that are working in silos without any systems of support? So, you know, first that district administrator, and then for the language professional that's in the school district without any, any support systems, what recommendations would you give them? I, I think that the recommendation for people working on silos, it's a twofold. And hopefully I will answer all the questions. Um, First of all, do not sit down waiting for someone to come and rescue you uh, because that will never happen in life, unfortunately, right? I, I And I'll go back to that experience in Quebec. Uh, and that is where I always go back. Uh, I cannot sit down for someone to come and do it for me. I have to do it myself. Um, so start feeling empowered. Start trying to be smart about it. Trust that you have the skills and the knowledge and that you are the expert. Mm. Um, and try to win hearts one by one. Ooh, win hearts. Love that. When you're doing things from the heart, um, you know you're in the right path. That's right. So let your heart be the lead, the leader. And, and the second part of this is learn to collaborate. Um, sometimes uh, we are working in silos because perhaps that's the culture or, or the structure of an institution. Um, so having a voice and then going and collaborating, winning those hearts so that people want to sit down with you and are open to receive your message. And every individual needs to find out what is the piece of value that they are bringing? What is the value that I bring to this conversation? What is the value that I bring to this work? And focus on that. Don't try to do everything. Mm -hmm. But rather just figure it out. Like, this is the problem. What is the value that I can have or I can add to this to solve this this situation and if you go for those things you're um setting yourself up for for success 
Love it. And, and don't be afraid of failure, right? Because sometimes it might be that other circumstances are not there in place and, and you're going to fail. And that, that is okay. At least you're trying. Yes. Thick skin. That's right. Thick skin is really, really important. Um, that is my legal side telling me. It's okay. <laughs> Have some thick skin and know that, yes, that, you know, if it were, if it were easy, we'd all We'd all have right the the systems of support in place already in all school districts. It would if it was be a part. easy, you and I will not have jobs. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No. It's it's definitely an uphill battle. But I think you you mentioned the very key thing in continuing. If it is in fact a battle, and we're seeing it that way, and continuing it is uh, having a heart to do so. So that's that's very important, most definitely. What about recommendations to school administrators or district administrators with regards to language access in schools? Listen to the experts. Bring them to the conversations. Uh, create the, the environment so that they feel empowered. I was saying on the other side, not everybody will empower you. But if you're in the other position where you can empower someone, uh, do it. Go for it. Uh, nobody's going to come and take your place. People bring different skills. And so you need to feel comfortable bringing an additional chair to the table. I have to say that um, I am always impressed by the leaders, uh, people with bigger titles than mine, that bring a chair for me to sit down and empower me to speak. I am really grateful to them. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I know it feels right. So whoever has the opportunity to do that for others should do it. Yeah, and that's true leadership. You know, when you're hiring That's people, leadership. yes. And they should not be afraid of, of someone like me or you That's that comes right. talk about different things. Instead, they should see it as an opportunity to for their organization to grow, yeah. um, let alone themselves. Um, let alone so, themselves. yes, and 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 enter into uh, really in depth conversations, and 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 I think that bringing in the the person that is most appropriate to speak on that topic is. Oh, so many good things, Maribel, like open the door, pull up a chair. That yeah. That's powerful. Yes. So. And, and I have to say in the district, I have had those opportunities with many leaders that are now gone and with leaders that are still here. And in, the, in, in a given moment, I have expressed my gratitude and, and I see them and I appreciate them. And I have learned so much from them. Um, because they are uh, modeling for me as well what leadership looks like. Leadership, exactly. Ah, chills all over. Oh, so good, so good. Well, Marifed, we're coming to the close of our conversation. Unfortunately, I think uh, listeners already know that whenever I bring someone to the table for us to talk about back and forth this very important topic, um, I could go on forever. <laughs> But unfortunately, I have to, you know, honor the time that that I requested uh, for you to volunteer to come on here that you graciously volunteered. Uh, and I do have to cut it short. But I can tell you that I already have so many different ideas with regards to expanding this topic and bringing experts such as yourself uh, into the conversation. A couple last things. How can bilingual staff advocate for themselves? bilingual staff untrained, but are being uh, utilized to, to do the service of a trained interpreter? How can they advocate for themselves? Um, that is an interesting question. I think, it, I, I think that we need to ensure that bilingual staff are truly bilingual. That is the first uh, thing. 
And so as, as someone that may be identified in your school district as you are bilingual, you need to be honest with yourself and decide if you truly can help a family in their language or you're just scrambling um, whatever is going to be uh, communicated. That will be the first one. Um, just have an uh, honest outlook and say, hey, listen, this this conversation is a, a different level of bilingualism is required. And I may or may not be prepared for that. That is the first thing. It's, that doesn't have to do with having uh, skills for an interpreter. That has to do straight with whether you can communicate in both languages. So that will be my first one. Um, so if you are not, the first recommendation is that you recommend to get an interpreter. Yeah, I think that's, and it's full stop because just find out what systems are available so that you're able to offer that, you know? So if it's not something that is, uh, you're able to handle, be able to identify what is available for the district and how can I recommend that rather than you coming to me because you've identified me or deemed me bilingual enough to perform those duties. So, um, so and, excellent and points. With the collaboration piece and with the going with your heart, right? You, if you are trying to do what is best, you will say, hey, no, uh, I really want the best for this student and we should get a professional here. Um, the second piece um, is for, for people to collaborate and leave their egos at the door. Like, it's okay for me not to be everything for everybody. So That's let's bring an expert. Such great stuff. Um, last question, Marifer. Where can our listeners find out more about you and the work that you do? Well, as I mentioned, I am active on Twitter and LinkedIn. I don't think I have my Twitter handle, but probably something like Marifer Sager. And you can see examples of my work at pps.net and at ppsfamilysupports.com. Uh, that is a fully uh, multilingual site that we had prepared uh, using language, uh, plain language, and then translating uh, from there. Um, and I'm very proud of that. I think there will be an article coming up about that uh, that website. I am going to be linking not just your social media handles and your websites in the episode notes, but also the article that brought me to you um, and any other article that is out there because there's there's more than one uh, highlighting the work uh, that you're leading out there. And um, I, for one, am very much uh, grateful and appreciative that one day you decided to make the work public to take it out uh, outside of the structures of the building that you're working in and the organization that you're in to be able to become a model of uh, language access in K through 12 public education for those of us that are navigating this topic alone or, or so we thought and, and be able to tap into something that makes us feel connected and rooted to the cause. Because I think that sometimes we find that maybe we feel alone in, in you know, trying to make a change or a difference in the, the work that we're doing. And so when we find others like you that have already started this and that truly believed in what you were doing, uh, it makes us feel like we are definitely connected and that we're on the right path. So I, for one, thank you very much for having shared uh, all your knowledge and putting it out there for public knowledge for those of us seeking that guidance. And of course, 
of course, for the opportunity to have this conversation with you today and allowing me the opportunity to share your story and the story of the work that you're doing and you're leading out there. So Marifer, once again, I want to thank you. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much, Mireya, for your words. Um, I receive them with a lot of um, humility. I, I am humbled by your words. Um, this is, I, I, I want to make sure that people understand that this is not about me. This is a, I am very grateful to my team because without them, the work would not be coming to life. Uh, I am super grateful to the district um, because I have this opportunity to, to conduct this work, this important work. I am grateful to all my uh, peers across the country for, for the support, for reaching out, um, for uh, continued uh, trying to implement language access and do what is right for families. And most importantly, I'm grateful for families because they trust us uh, with uh, our ability to communicate what they need to hear in a language they uh, feel more comfortable with. And, and without them, we will not be here <laughs> again, I right? completely agree. Uh, and thank you so much, Mireya, for the amazing work that you are doing, for taking me into consideration. I am really, really honored to be here today. Uh, I had seen a lot of uh, friends and, and colleagues uh, participating in, in your podcast, and, and I am just honored to be one one more now, uh, counting myself among them. Absolutely. It takes a village. I think, uh, uh, Marifed, you said it best. And so, you know, I want to give credit to where credit is due, but it also takes that one person um, to first plant the seed and, and for people to see it grow. So thank you once again, Marifed, and we'll be in touch. I'm sure of it. Thank you. And thank you to your audience for listening today. Yes. Thank you for sticking around. Hey, thanks for sticking around till the very end. If you'd like to connect with me, head on over to the website, brandtheinterpreter.com and click on the connect with me tab. You can also stay connected on social media, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube as Brand the Interpreter or Mireya Perez on LinkedIn. Till next time.